The Devil Wears Dog Hair, part three of the reading, chapter seven, (laughs) Trust No One. My boyfriend, Adrian, Nottingham's answer to Ben Fogel, very much liked my posh new St John's Wood garden flat, but he was rather intimidated by Dagmar, the Swedish landlady that sometimes stayed over. One night, we were all watching television together when Peter Ustinov popped up onto the screen. I really like him, said Adrian, desperately trying to make polite conversation with this jet-setting Irish wolfhound lady. Me too, said Dagmar excitedly. He's always such a wonderful dinner guest, isn't he? Adrian's jaw may have dropped open slightly more than even usual. Life at the Kennel Club was getting slightly busier for me. I never turned down any opportunity. I was asked to write for their very stuffy monthly magazine, the Kennel Gazette. My middle-ranking boss, the Wolfman, wanted me to produce a problem page to answer the public's most frequently asked questions about the Kennel Club. But the editor, Charlie, proved very elusive. Every time I went into the Gazette office to talk to him, he wasn't there. I began to wonder if he actually really existed. After the white German shepherd dog debacle, Wolfman said, I should aim for maximum croup protection. In other words, arse covering. I was to give the drafts of all the questions and answers for signing off to each relevant department head. I was soon to discover offices and floors at the kennel club I didn't know existed. Via the internal post, I got a grubby torn message that Kennel Gazette editor Charles wanted to rendezvous over the road at the Samuel Pepys pub. Over very many drinks, me on Coca-Cola. Coke, yes. I didn't do anything more exciting. I'd learnt my lesson after the wine incident. I discovered that this handsome, intelligent and shambolic man had been to Oxford, but he had taken a wrong turn somewhere and ended up working at the Kennel Club. He revealed he had briefly had a spell as a bin man. He looked sad when I laughed and said editing the Kennel Gazette was my dream job. He'd quite like being a bin man. Miss Cuddy, you are a very strange fish, aren't you? He said, smiling. You look almost normal, yet you're really one of those dog nutters, aren't you? It was very dark when the meeting finished and Charlie hailed me a black cab. We had only very briefly discussed the new problem page. Just before I drove away, Charles pulled me close and whispered in my ear that I should... Never trust anyone at the kennel club. I assumed he was joking. I was very excited when the new edition of the Kennel Gazette landed on my desk. No one ever owned up to calling the problem page the toe-curling title BC of the KC. But it didn't help that it was next to a huge photo of me grinning inanely. Someone had apparently thought it would show a friendlier face of the Kennel Club. 
me and all my bosses very quickly saw the very unfriendly face of the Kennel Club chairman. I was stunned that my problem page wasn't totally axed, but it was quickly rebranded, your questions answered, and my photo byline dropped. Almost immediately, another high-profile opportunity was to land on my desk. Mark, a massive ex-police chief, massive in status and, well, everything really, was the new chairman of Crufts. So, technically, yet another of my bosses. He wanted Crufts to be more modern and attract more positive publicity. And he wanted me to have a go at writing press releases and then looking after the Supreme Champion's PR in the days that followed. I assumed all of my colleagues were just jealous when they sucked their teeth and told me to be very, very careful. I remember thinking, what could possibly go wrong? And then I remembered Charles's eerie words of caution. Next chapter. BC and her PC at the KC. In the 1980s, everyone had a perm. Well, that's my excuse. I was ahead of the curve, or curl, in other ways. Buying a personal computer. One of Lord Sugar's chunky Amstrads. I spent several long weeks reading and rereading the instructions I had very little else to fill my leisure time. Boyfriend Adrian, yes, Nottingham's answer to Ben Fogle, should the question ever be asked, spent every waking moment doing sport or the Guardian crossword. And my beloved dogs were still the other end of the country with my parents. Our Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, had brainwashed everyone, even my lefty boyfriend, to climb the property ladder. Despite currently living rent-free in the splendour of St John's Wood, Adrian proposed, no, not on one knee, that we buy somewhere together. As we both earned a pittance, we could only afford to buy with a third person. Another very active socialist, Joe, was keen to get some property. That night, in the very posh local wine bar. Adrian revealed he'd never felt really very comfortable living in NW8 and that he had no aspirations to ever live in anything bigger than a semi-detached house. I instantly thought how useless that would be for all my very noisy bearded collies. I started having serious doubts that Adrian was the one. Well, rather mysteriously, we still bought a flat in Brixton. A huge communal swimming pool dazzled all of our sensibilities. The chlorine was to play havoc with my perm. It was the very pinnacle of the property peak, just before decades of negative equity. But at least work was improving. At the Kennel Club, I travelled along the corridor to work with Charlie full-time as assistant editor on the monthly Kennel Gazette magazine. 
Much of the job involved hiding him from the bosses when he was very drunk or covering for him when he was in the pub over the road. I had a huge affection for Charlie and happily took over more and more of his work without the salary. The Kennel Gazette was starting to fill an Adrian-shaped void. I invented new features such as the judge's choice. You'll see it still exists all these years later. I would write to all the top judges and ask them to pick the best ever example. And we'd have a different breed every month. And they'd usually send back scraps of paper that all had to be keyed in and checked. I found it easier to do this complex feature on the weekend on my trusty Amstrad which had a very, very early version of copy and paste. So all the very weird kennel club names of the top dogs could at least be spelt wrong consistently. When Adrian forgot to feed the meter at the flat while tumble drying his football kits in our menage a trois, I lost 3,000 very precious words. The next day... When I'd stopped crying, I asked Charlie to buy me another Amstrad, this time for my desk at work. The staff had guided tours when it arrived. The first computer at the kennel club. Charlie was thoroughly delighted to let me do more work. Crufts chairman, ex-police chief Mark, was impressed by my new-fangled PC and had it carefully transferred to Earl's Court, which was the venue for the world's greatest dog show back then. I was to write the Kennel Club's first ever press release from a tiny windowless cupboard at the world's greatest dog show. I was living the dream. I even got to interview the famous Pat from EastEnders in my lunch break, mainly because all the Kennel Club officials wanted to have lunch with the Prince, Prince Michael or Prince somebody or other. And, um, well, it was all tremendously glamorous. There is a photo. If you look on our Devil Wears Dogs website, you'll see my perm and you'll see Pat's fantastic coat. It was it was in black and white, the photo, but wow, you can still see that really stood out at Crufts. What could possibly go wrong with my career at the Kennel Club? Next chapter, Crufts Crystal Ball. In the olden days, Crufts was always held in central London. And even though I lived nearby, the early starts meant We all had to stay in a hotel if we worked every day. By now, I was wearing very many hats. Thankfully, only figuratively. The hideous kennel club uniform didn't include a fascinator. I was working for the Kennel Gazette at the show and also doing some ad hoc PR on the direct orders of Mark, the Crufts chairman but I wasn't actually officially anything to do with the Kennel Club press office. In those days, it was actually in a physical office in the gods at Earl's Court. 
there was frosted glass and an even frostier lady inside. I was terrified of her. So were the press. The previous year, I had diffused a near riot when the press officer locked her door and refused to come out and give anybody their main ring press passes. Best in show was soon to happen. Even the blue Peter producer was using the F word. Things were really, really tense. The year before had been memorable too. The RSPCA had erected a massive billboard on their stand. It showed a mountain of dead dogs in bin bags. The Kennel Club secretary, the Major General, declared war on them and demanded they take it down immediately or leave. Well, of course, they refused. And suddenly this fight was the press's main story rather than which one, which one of the dogs won Crofts. The billboard was everywhere. The Major had played straight into their hands. This year, it was hoped, things would be slightly more peaceful. I was an additional layer of positivity, but no one had actually mentioned this to the actual press officer. A few weeks before, I had interviewed gossip columnist Nigel Dempster about his Pekingese. This was for the Kennel Gazette, of course. He was thoroughly charming and he asked me who I thought might win Best in Show at Crufts that year. Being a bit of a dog show bore, I had already studied the form of all the top dogs and assessed who had the most favourable judges at every stage of the competition. Without thinking of the consequences of my actions, I said I thought this year it might be the bearded collie winning best in show and maybe the peak for reserve. Part of my new responsibilities at Crufts involved writing instant press releases about each group winner as they won. And that meant finding out the dog's pet name and any fact that the media might find amusing or charming. Those in the outside world really had no interest in how many cc's the dog had won. So I had to talk to the breathless winners as they came out of the green carpeted arena and ask them to talk about things that they weren't remotely interested in. My job was to go even further. I would look after the best in show winner for the next few days after they won, staying with them and accompanying them to any TV interviews, making sure they were happy and positive. There was another part of my job where I had to actually try and stop them from signing strange forms because when they won Best in Show, there was a bit of a, well, there's a bit of a tussle for which pet food they were going to endorse. And back in those days, well, it, top breeders did recommend it. It was uh, pedigree pet foods that uh, had first go. And um, yes, so I was sort of working for the Kennel Club, but at the same time looking after the Kennel Club sponsor. So, yes, it was, it was a bit confusing. Anyway, 
It was also confusing because people expected when they won Best in Show to actually win some money. Um, yeah, it was only advertised that they won 100 quid, but um, they thought, uh, you know, surely at some point, because they usually did a TV advert for the sponsor, that, uh, yeah, they'd, they'd get a car or maybe some free food or something. But in the days that followed after they won Best in Show, I had to sort of break it to them gently that, um, well, no, <laughs> they didn't win anything at all. Uh, they just said that they fed a food and um, got patted on the back for it. And usually they're a little bit miffed because, well, it may be that maybe they didn't feed that food. Hmm. Anyway, I'll leave you to ponder on that. Um, yes. So there I was trying to keep people happy and positive after winning Best in Show. Well, what are the chances that very first year the bearded collie won Best in Show and the Pekingese Reserve? I got them both right. Nigel Dempster had, of course, written about it in the paper. But thankfully, no one in the dog world reads the normal newspapers. So no one seemed to spot it. So I got away with that. The beardy was owned by Brenda and Pete, who I already knew. My job was to help them celebrate and get them to and from their many media appearances. It has to be said, this was hardly difficult work. I even got a blue Peter badge. Eventually. I had to go back to work. I got quite used to living in hotels. After almost a week away, I returned to the Brixton flat and the realisation that I hadn't missed Adrian and he hadn't missed me. Next chapter. Joining the jet set. I always counted down the days to my next trip home. I would get the train to Liverpool Lime Street Station. My father had recently renovated this. He was my complete idol, a perfectionist who made his mark on so many significant buildings in Liverpool. My work at the Kennel Club seemed trivial in comparison. What was I building? I couldn't even take my own dogs to work with me. Dogs were bizarrely not welcome at the kennel club in that era. I tried to make a difference. I had written many, many reports on how I thought things could be improved. I was tremendously beardy-like in my relentless enthusiasm, not realising that some young upstart from Liverpool pointing out all of their failings might have been a bit of a pain to the kennel club hierarchy. I'd written a very long report on my creaky Amstrad about how we could learn a lot from the Swedish Kennel Club. They'd made health testing mandatory in order to use their registration system. Our Kennel Club. Hmm. Well, they just upset everybody, including the top geneticist possibly in the world, Dr Malcolm Willis. They not only failed to make health testing mandatory, they'd also published without anyone being consulted 
all the test results from the people who were voluntarily doing the testing. So that included all the fails. Hmm, that made even the most wonderful breeders extremely reluctant to test. Bless him, Malcolm was a Kennel Club member and he held a press conference on the Kennel Club steps when they expelled him for being critical. My helpful, unrequested report nearly gave Dr Death a heart attack. He told me, they are the Swedish Kennel Club. We are the Kennel Club. It is they that should be learning from us. My trip home this time was the first without Adrian. My mum, who liked to imagine she was a communist, despite having sent both me and my brother to private schools, missed his comradeship. But he'd never really liked the dogs. Sally was delighted to have me all to herself. And she lay on my bed every night, keeping as still as possible. Her beautiful face was lovely to wake up for, too, but I did wonder if perhaps she had stayed up all night staring at me. I was dreading leaving, and my return to work and Brixton. On my last day in Liverpool, I'd shared the sofa with all the beardies, and Mum and I watched a new phenomenon, daytime TV. This morning was very new and was filmed locally at the Liverpool Docks, another of my dad's building projects. Richard and Judy were talking about a competition, asking what viewers would like to wear next year and asking us to send in our sketches. I missed hearing what the prize was. I think maybe maybe the dogs barked because the postman came or something. They came very late. Um, so... I still thought it sounded interesting. The train back to London was even slower than usual. I started doodling. I was always drawing bearded collies. I always draw bearded collies. I still do. While I'm talking to you, I'm doodling bearded collies. But I thought it might make a change to have a go at drawing people and fashion. I guessed what the address for this morning might be and posted my scribbles off. Adrian had moved into the spare room when I got home. I was off the next day to Monaco to interview Princess Antoinette of Monaco for the Gazette. She was a Kennel Club member. In those days, you couldn't research your subject on the internet, so I had to find a book that told me how to address a princess. Gazette expenses meant I was to travel by sleeper train to the south of France, giving me plenty of time to read up on the only book I could find that mentioned Antoinette, a biography of the late Princess Grace. Her sister-in-law. I was meeting eccentric kennel club photographer Marc Henri in Monaco. He was flying. In his youth, Marc had taken photos of Ronald Reagan, because he was a, a, a studio photographer in Hollywood. But Ronald Reagan was quite a young man when Mark was taking his photos. It was odd, but 
Mark still looked very much younger than Ronald Reagan. I was certain he must have one of his own portraits in his attic. I had never met anyone quite like Mark. I'd never met anyone who wore a cravat either. Would I remember to curtsy when I met my first princess? Spoiler alert, no. Tune in for the next episode.